You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures, and still in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, everyone, to our Sunday Gospel Reflection. Annie Mitchell, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Father Hezekiah. How are you? Great. We're on our 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. And um, and I know I oftentimes say this, but I'm going to say it again. And that is, we're living in a post-Pentecost season, now in the later portion of that post-Pentecost season. But nevertheless, in the post-Pentecost season, in which the church finds herself uh, reflecting upon the life of the early church, and then applying the challenges that the early Christians faced to us by way of this, this, the examples from Scripture. So and this is a great example of this uh liturgical catechetical process today because we're now as i say in the later part of the pentecost season everything changes for us september 1st september 14th early september because this is the most ancient beginning of the liturgical new year which we often think of as the beginning of advent at least in the in the christian east the liturgical year begins in september 1st and really has its kind of more dramatic turning moment, even with September 14th, that is the Holy Cross as kind of the cross standing as the, the gateway to the next season, which is going to be the Advent season. And then we enter into then this kind of pre-Advent, like the Advent of Advent liturgically. So, but, but that's, that's coming now. Right now we are in that late season of the Pentecost time period in which the church has now gone out and has engaged with the Gentile world and has brought converts into the family of God, has dealt with the Jews who were debating, you know, whether there should be circumcision. Remember those m- months ago, right? It's, been, it's yeah. a long distance way that we were looking back there that we were considering how the church was dealing with the Judaizers, but then the Gentile world, but then now uh these weeks are kind of almost like a warning to the established church saying here's how you're to live in relationship with one another and some things are a little bit out of whack we need to bring them back into 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 thing yeah i was gonna say i saw a lot of commentaries (laughs) on on the readings that we'll be discussing here and we'll i hope everybody has their notebooks and their bibles out getting ready to to write these passages down but I thought it was interesting looking at the commentaries, a lot of them directed at priests 
and religious. Yeah. Um, as like this is a this is a bit of a warning sign for you guys. Because a lot of those commentaries are being are are, are old homilies, right? Early homilies yeah. or instructions from the church fathers. A quotation here from Origen, which is really excellent. And that's actually that's then of course the third application, right? So you have the first application is historical. What's the Bible telling us, right? Mm-hmm. Then how is that applied to the life of the early church? And we see that usually it come out in the epistle reading. Mm-hmm. But then all of that applied to today, along with the quote, quotations from the church fathers who are writing in the second, third, fourth, fifth century, sixth century, and so forth. And the great saints who say, hey, now the church is established, this all applies to you. And these warnings that Jesus gave to those around him are applicable to your circumstances too. So let's jump right in here, Annie, give us the biblical yeah. text. All right. Our first reading, um, be ready to write down a lot of numbers here because there's a lot of skipping around. First reading from the book of Sirach, chapter three, and here we go, verses 17 and 18, then verse 20, then verses 28 and 29. The responsorial psalm is Psalm 68. Our gospel today will be from Luke chapter 14. We'll set it up with verse 1 and then read from verses 7 through 14. And then our epistle is from the letter to the Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, and then verses 22 through 24. I get the impression the church is really trying to hone in on a particular message here. (laughs) Well, it's not, I would say it's not even so much honing on a particular message as it trying to to say, okay, that's a repetition or maybe streamline. Yeah. Trying to streamline it. So you're right. It's, it's a way of honing, but it's not that those other verses wouldn't help. It's just like trying to, yeah, nail it anyways. For what it's All right. Worth. So are you ready to jump into Sirach let's, chapter three, Father? Let's let's do it. In fact, okay. let's read Annie. Let's read from verse 17 through 29. So Sirach three. Well, hang on. I got to get out my actual Whoa, I got you, Annie. And all of you people out there that don't have your Bibles open, get your Bible open right now. Because, you know, we have in front of us, of course, the USCCB printout because we want to see have the reading and the translation for you. But in this case, you know, we could read, well, tell you what, let's begin with the just simple reading from the USCCB with all those verses missing, mm-hmm. Annie, and then we can go in and maybe read through some of this with the verses not missing, Okay. if you're interested. Okay, so let's start with the piece exactly how we're going to hear it at Mass this coming Sunday. All right, and I have my Bible open to Sirach chapter three for the Good. record. Thank you. I'm ready to go. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right, here we go. Sirach chapter three where we're skipping around. Yeah. My child, conduct your affairs with humility and you will be loved more than a giver of gifts. Humble yourself the more, the greater you are, and you will find favor with God. What is too sublime for you, seek not. Into things beyond your strength, search not. The mind of a sage appreciates proverbs and an attentive ear is the joy of the wise. Water quenches a flaming fire and alms atone for sins. All right. Do you want to read any verses in between right now or do you want to 
Well, I think we can just take it. We can just take it from here. I mean, we want to start with, I'm guessing, like we normally do context, right? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. So, so remind us what Sirach is all about. Right. So the, what we normally do with the prophets and here again with the wisdom literature is turn to the beginning of the book in which we can kind of see, and you're going to see that there is a prologue to Sirach. It's a prologue written and by the way those that have different translations of the bible might have different titles for this book sometimes you'll see the book called ecclesiasticus which is church or assembly book right that's what it means uh ecclesia the church the assembly or the wisdom of sirach or just sirach okay mm -hmm. whatever you have in your bibles you'll see there's a prologue and that prologue is written by the grandson of the author of this text, which was originally written in Hebrew, okay, around the second century BC, written in Hebrew sometime maybe earlier in the century, and then later heading, it's all opposite, right? So you're counting down towards Jesus. Sure. Uh, later on, translated into Greek by the grandson who finds himself in Egypt among the diaspora of the Jews. So you have two things going on. You have this originally written in Jerusalem by the author and then translated by the grandson in a different context, right? And so the purposes are different, but they're the same. Because if you are uh, ICC Bible students will know, if you say second century BC, what's going on? Just big picture, go back fifth sixth century bc seventh century bc and you have what event the babylonian exile. babylonian exile in of which 70 years later a lot of jews do come back but a lot do not there is a diaspora of jews that find themselves all over the place um in 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 this case in egypt in which they're dealing with the fact that there are now many generations removed from jerusalem um, and for those in Jerusalem, by the way, for those who it was originally written for, they find themselves, what, second century, two, 200 years before, before Christ, right? They find themselves under foreign oppression. First of the Babylonians or the, well, the Persians who give them freedom to go back, but still remain in control. The Greeks, and then eventually the Romans. So during this whole time period, though, of course, Rome has not risen to power. And, and so they're they're, they're going to find themselves under the power of the Greeks um, and, uh, and, and during that time asking themselves difficult questions about, hey, what happened? Back Second Samuel chapter 7, the Lord says that uh, to David, that David's son, Solomon, and his descendants will remain on the throne forever. And yet they're under foreign oppression, right? There's not... And, and there's all sorts of problems going on in the time of the Maccabees, for example, and so forth. There's all sorts of struggles of the people trying to re retain the faith. The rising of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these attempts to retain the faith in a difficult situation. And that's exactly what's going on here in the book of Sirach, both for the author and for the translator, the grandson, who finds himself in Egypt. So just here you go. Look at a couple of verses with me in the prologue. So not even in chapter one yet. I'm going to go down to about five, 10. Well, in my Bible, it's about 10 lines. My grandfather, Jesus, you see that? Oh, yeah. You see that line? Underline <laughs> yes. that or highlight or something. There it is. So 
the Ecclesi- here's the title ecclesiasticus or the wisdom of jesus the son of sirach okay but here we're talking about the grand the, the my grandfather jesus well jesus is the greek translate transliteration of the hebrew name joshua or joshua yeah joshua is the transliteration actually and so anyways so here you have the grandson of this guy joshua who finds himself then i'm going to go down three paragraphs in this text in my translation when i came to egypt see that Mm-hmm. when i came to egypt so his grandson this the grandson of joshua ends up in egypt and he translates it because he thinks what his grandfather's written for those who are suffering in jerusalem is applicable to those in the diaspora in fact you can read that whole paragraph watch this when i came to egypt in the 30 uh, 38th year the reign of this guy is is tall is, is ptolemy urgentes and stayed for some time, I found opportunity for no little instruction. It seemed highly necessary that I should myself devote some pains and labor to the translation of the following book, using in that period of time great watchfulness and skill in order to complete and publish the book for those living abroad who wished to gain learning, being prepared in the character to live according to the law. Then mm-hmm. begins the book, in which we have a litany of uh, proverbs if you will or litany of instructions about how to live a faithful jewish life right how to remain faithful to god in foreign circumstances in which there's all sorts of temptations to be assimilated into egyptian or more properly greek culture the hellenistic culture which is predominant at that time and here this guy is saying this these proverbs are going to help you out yeah, so that's what this is. It's a catechism. I'll just go back one last thing on the context and as back to that original name of Ecclesiasticus. The church book, the assembly book, is when you get together, here's your catechism about how to live. It's the moral instruction for God's people. It was used in the early church as one of the primary catechisms in the liturgy. And so um, it's pretty cool and you can read it and it's got all sorts of things, all sorts of insights about the spiritual life. That's my introduction. Absolutely. So let's look at the insights that we particularly can glean from chapter three of Sirach. So like I said, we, we skip around quite a bit in this reading. So um, is it fair to ask, you know, like what is the greater context of the chapter in which this is in and then how this reading sort of fits into that greater theme? Yeah, so let me read from, from, uh, from uh, what's his name? Fuentes. Antonio Fuentes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I oftentimes reference this book and on these books like Sirach and other ones that are not maybe on your you know top five spiritual readings, like, you got to go back <laughs> and knock off the rust. Father has guys got a lot of rust going on. So I always go back and just get a quick skim of my highlights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember that, all that stuff. And he's got this nice little insight. Listen, listen. At the basis of his teaching, Ben Sirach puts fear of God. In concrete terms, this means fleeing from sin as a first step on the road to virtue, and then walking that way in humility, which is the basis of all the other virtues. Through humility, a person accepts himself and recognizes his defects while also respecting his neighbor and never engaging in defamation and calumny. So, so here you have it. The humility ends up as fear is the first 
kind of uh, a movement, a realization of who the Lord is and a movement away from sin. But then there's the positive movement of, of humility, of accepting me, my, being honest about who I am, about my own, as, as Fuentes says, my own defects, right? My own weaknesses. And then to realize, as I like to say to my parishioners, that we are not called to be judge, jury, and executioner of our brother and sister, but we are called to be in the image and likeness of the heavenly physician. And that is to see my brother, my sister, those around me, and realize that they are also fallen human beings like I am. They're sinners. So there's no surprise there when my brother doesn't act perfectly. He's not immaculately conceived. And then to say, okay, I recognize the other's weakness. I am in their life so as to bring about their perfection. So I have to say, what does a person who struggles in this way need to be healed, right? Do they need to be executed? No. What are the ingredients they need in their life so as to grow in the way that God wants them to grow? Yeah. And so here's the fundamental, the foundations we read in this, in this text, my child, conduct your affairs with humility. That is be honest about who you are and your relationship with your brother. And you will be loved more than the giver of gifts. Okay. So you might ask yourself, what's wrong with the giver of gifts? And we can talk about that. Okay. Humble yourself the more, the greater you are. And you will find favor with God. So there's all these, these are, the, these, are these proverbs, right? There's this thing and then this thing, right? Or it's almost like it's a repetition in a new way, right? The original idea. And this repetition in a new way, right? We get down those last two lines. Water quenches a flaming fire, just as alms atone for sin. So he gives this example and then explains it in a new way, right? He does this, Jesus does this with Nicodemus being born again. Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. No one can, how does he say it? You know, no one, well, let's turn there. See that? I'm going to keep my book, my hand, and I'm turning to the gospel of John chapter three. I'm in verse three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse five. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's the same thing said yeah. a, a different way. So, okay. Anyways, there you, there you have it. I'm really glad that you brought up that verse about water quenches a flaming fire and alms atone for sins. So I wanted to to ask about that. First of all, how does almsgiving atone for sins and what does that have to do with humility, Father? Okay, uh, let's let's uh, maybe we go in reverse okay. on that come to the almsgiving because i always like to talk about almsgiving okay because i think yeah. it's a very important thing in the spiritual life but uh, let's go back to the question about humility that that second line the second kind of uh instruction humble yourselves the more and the greater you are and you will find favor with god right why is that true why do you find favor why does someone find favor with god one finds favor with God when one is like God. Yes. Right. Right. So is it is a matter of becoming like him. Well, then it, it prompts the question, which is. How do I is, be like God? Well, no. It, oh. Can God really be humble? Like, oh. is, is God yeah. humble? I mean, well, humility is being truthful about who you are. 
and your relationship with the other, right? So the Lord is perfectly truthful about who he is, which is perfection, right? Yeah. And so we accept where we are in relationship to him. I oftentimes tell people, not only is it because the Lord is truthful about who he is, but there is this mystery of God's humility in, in that we see manifest in the incarnation, right? Yeah. Um, that, that God humbled himself, right? That the, the, the word of God humbled himself to become a man. Well, this action is an action which is true about God. Yeah. He humbles himself. And we can see this in the life of the Holy Trinity in the giving of the, of, of life from the father to the son and the Holy spirit. God has lived a life. I, I always say it, right. God has lived a life of self-giving love from all eternity. And so there's a certain mystery to God's own self, I'm going to say humiliation, right? Humbleness. Sure. Right. In which he gives totally of himself to the other from all eternity. Yeah. Well, that's in Philippians, right? I'm yeah, exactly. Philippians two, yeah. I think. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 215. So, so there's this, this mystery here. And then he finds favor in God, with God because he sees, the Lord sees in the humble one, his own image and likeness. Yeah. I oftentimes tell people when they go to confession, that the first thing about going to confession is not confessing your sins. That is an important part of confession, but the first and most important part of confession is confessing God. Hmm. And apart from confessing God, we cannot know our sins because we don't know the high calling to which we've been called. So it's only by confessing him. That's why I love the, the beautiful tradition of always having in the confessional, the crucifix, or in the Byzantine tradition, icon of Jesus or the gospel book, so that the, the penitent comes before not a priest, not a man, but God himself. It's, it's to God we confess our sins. The priest lends his ear, right? We are, we are the, the hands and feet, eyes and ears in the body of Christ. The priest lends his ear to the penitent, but it's to God whom we do, that we confess our sins, yeah? Confessing him to be the one in whose image and likeness I am made, and therefore I can then measure myself in reality of how far I am from being a child of God, living according to his nature, yes? Which yeah. is the answer, Annie, to your first question regarding alms, yeah? And so you said, how do alms atone for sins, right? That was your question. Yeah. Because you're asking the question because you are a nervous Roman Catholic. <laughs> who has been attacked for 500 years by Martin Luther and his minions because of the selling of indulgences, right? Yeah. Here it is in the book of Sirach. What? Yeah. It's Sirach's one of the books the Protestants threw out. I'm not, if I'm not. Out. Yeah. I was going to say, I believe this is uh, apocrypha to the. What? Yeah. Why was Sirach thrown out? Because, because it was believed that, well, the excuse was, it was believed that, that uh, this, text was only available in the Greek, in the original Greek and at the council of Jamnia in 70 AD, the Jews got together when the whole of Judaism was in massive crisis because of Christianity and the conversion to Christ to the, well, not conversion, the continuing on of the faith in, in following Jesus, who is King, the son right. of David now the Jews that did not accept Christ find themselves in crisis and they came together in Jamnia. And one of the ideas that they held on to was that the books of the Bible that were to be held were only those that they had that were written in Hebrew. And Sirach was, was one of those that was called into question. Luther followed that pattern. You can go listen on the ICC website to Dr. Eric Janislaus's talk, 
how the Bible came to be. Of course, Sirach was originally written. It, it, there, we have a Hebrew text to it. Yes, the Greek translation is here with the prologue, but much of it is known in Hebrew, and remnants have been rediscovered in Cairo and other places in Hebrew. So anyways, that's a long way of going about this point about uh, atonement for sin. Yes, you can pay off your sins. Stop the presses. Everybody's going to go. Father Hezekiah has lost his mind. Yes, you can. You can pay for your sins. You can pay them off. You can literally get out a checkbook and write a check and God will forgive you your sins. That's what Sirach is saying. Yes, kind of, kind of. I'm playing a little bit of fun, funny with it. All alms, that is charitable giving, mm -hmm. atones for sin. Why? Why can such a statement be made by God himself, who is the inspired author of this text? Yeah. Yes. How is that possible? Well, because as I have said many times, sin is selfishness. Sin is always me firstness. It's always inward, which is the opposite of who God is. God is love, which is the pouring out of his light, the father to the son and the Holy Spirit, right? Living this life of love from all eternity of self-giving love. And in that mystery, we find the key, the answer to this. And that is that the Lord, when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, we're not talking about only getting rid of selfishness, but restoring charity. Yeah. Doing the opposite of what sin is. Yeah. Almsgiving, that is the taking of the giving of what is mine, mine with quotation marks, to others begins the process of restoration. And so it, re, it literally reverses sins. We think of sins in some juridical act by which I pay, like I was saying earlier, I, I pay off my sins. I pay the judge money and he gives, he, he says, okay, no, that's not the point almsgiving, real almsgiving is not a matter of writing a check. It's a matter of, of, of pouring out my life to the other. Now, in today, in, mo in modern American society, we do that by way of material thing, of, of, of cash money, right, or credit cards, if you will. But in the old days, it was your lamb, it was your, you know, your thing. You would take that and give that for a charitable work to the temple, to the poor man to so forth. And in this way, I would begin to live the life of God. And then sin would be destroyed in my life. It would be no longer not because the judge on high and, you know, all high executioner decided to give me a free pass. No, not at all. Because he looks at me and he sees his image and likeness. Yeah. yeah. He, he, in the words of Sirach, he finds favor with God. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this is now going to help us understand what Jesus is talking about in our gospel text, um, because much of what Jesus taught was almost almost wholesale quotations from Sirach, much of the Our Father and so forth like that. Sirach was the instruction book when you went to synagogue, when the, when the, when the Old Testament church got together, they considered and meditated upon these wise writings. And consider how their life conformed to those wise writings, or they didn't. Shall we look at the responsorial psalm? Sure. Because I think it's uh, somewhat related here. God, yes. in your goodness, you have made a home for the poor. Yeah. What and and what and oh, okay. Again, going back to Sirach, going back to the life of the Jews, 
who are struggling in that very thing about their home, about their temple, about where their relationship with the Lord is, are now uh, 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 given this opportunity to reflect upon really where their home is and what their true calling is. Remember, it was during this time the Jews were struggling rebuilding post-Babylonian exile, rebuilding the temple or rebuilding their own homes. Yeah, you get this, this exact thing. I have to turn to it with you. A few books down the road here. I'm going to flip to uh, Zechariah. I'm going to turn to Malachi. I'm going to turn back to Zechariah. <laughs> I'm going to turn to the, to Haggai. Okay, so here we are in Haggai, which we looked at recently, didn't we, yeah. Annie? Was it last week yeah. you looked at Haggai? I know, yeah, and now I know where to go. There you go, exactly. Okay. Because I still have my bookmark in my Bible, but, you know. Okay, I'm in Haggai. I'm in chapter one. Okay. I'm in verse nine. Haggai chapter one, verse nine. You have looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home... You, it, I blew it away. Why says the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins while you busy yourselves each with your own house. Yeah. Mm. So of course, this is now, it becomes a struggle for God's people, right? Where is their heart going to be? Where is their relationship with the Lord going to be? Where is their focus going to be? Is it going to be me firstness? Or is it going to be a restoration of the, my proper attitude, which is a, hum, uh, a humbling of myself, and the magnification, the glorification of those around me, first and foremost, the Lord. Yeah. And so it's in that, this is a very, this thing about being poor. I think it was Archbishop Elias Shakur said this. I think it was him regarding the Beatitudes in the gospel of Matthew. He says, to be poor is to be hungry. Hmm. Yeah. And it's only the hungry one that can be fed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so um, you, have, you it's only in becoming hungry, in, in humbling ourselves, that the Lord can provide for the things that we need. Isn't that true about riches in our life? That oftentimes riches, material riches, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes riches become this source of self-satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And soon the person forgets about the Lord and becomes so self fulfilled so self-reliant so self-established that the lord literally can't work in their lives there's no room for him they've lost their hunger but the poor man is hungry yeah think about i was thinking about in we were considering this and that in this response royal psalm psalm 68 god is in your goodness you have made a home for the poor same about mary right mm -hmm. who humbles herself and is exalted because of that that humbleness yeah. Um, and in her virginity, she ends up being the mother of God himself. Yeah, is a beautiful, a beautiful turn. So, yeah. And speaking of hunger and food, we got a gospel that talks about banqueting. So you go. shall we move on to yes, uh, Luke please. chapter 14 now? Yes. We'll start with verse one and then skip down for seven verses seven through 14. Yeah, but I do want to go back and look at its context in those verses that we missed. But yes, let's do this. Right yeah, now. absolutely. Okay. On a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people there were observing him carefully. He told a parable to those who had been invited, noticing how they were choosing the places of honor at the table. 
When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at table in the place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have been invited by him, and the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, give your place to this man. And then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place so that when the host comes to you, he may say, my friend, move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to the host who invited him, when you hold a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, Father. So last week, for mass we were in luke chapter 13 for the gospel and that um just as a little refresher was when jesus was talking about striving to enter the narrow gate mm -hmm. so now we're looking at luke 14 and it seems to me looking around in the bible here that um some significant passages have been passed over um to get to this one this weekend so um Talk about the context here. What's been going on in these sure. these past few verses? So we're at, we're at fourteen one and the following verses, right? Mm -hmm. There is uh, a healing. We talk about that in chapter fourteen, verses one through seven. There's a healing of a man on the Sabbath day. We need to touch on that, but I yeah. want to just go back a little bit more context into chapter thirteen, the end of chapter thirteen, verse thirty four. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. Now stop. We're going to go back now in our story in our over the last few weeks, talking about Jesus coming from Mount Tabor, making his way to Jerusalem. And mm -hmm. here now, Jesus passes passing through Galilee is going to head to Jerusalem. And the kind of turning point is right here in these final verses of chapter 13. So take a look at chapter 13, verse 31. So I'm going to keep going back, back, back. Chapter 13, verse 31, at that very hour, some of the Pharisees, now Jesus is going to end up in the home of a Pharisee, right? So right. some of the Pharisees came and said to him, get out from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he mm -hmm. said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow. And the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? Yeah. So, so here we have this passage in which Jesus is being told to get out of Dodge. And Dodge, in this case, is Galilee. Herod, in this case, is the son of Herod the Great. Remember uh, that there are a number of Herods in the gospel story. Oh, it gets confusing sometimes. It confuses me. I had to go back and make sure I understood it. But Herod the Great, of course, uh, at the time of the birth of Christ, who kills all the innocents, right, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, all the, all the uh, Palestinian boys are massacred. Great indeed, Herod. Yeah. And uh, that's Herod the Great right, who built the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus entered into. And Herod, 
ends up dying and he leaves his kingdom who he's a puppet king herod the great he's under the authority of rome but he's given the title king you can go back and listen to my my uh, six-part series swords and serpents in which we go through all of this he's a puppet king and he leaves his his kingdom not this is maybe i'm painting with broad brush but just for our purposes to three of his sons herod archelaus herod antipas and herod philip okay for the sake of our discussion we can talk about archelaus who gets judea around jerusalem sure north in galilee to the to the, in the, the western side of the sea of galilee Herod Antipas, who we normally call Herod, who ends up at the trial of Jesus, and the east side of the Sea of Galilee, Philip, who is the weakest of the three brothers. It goes from crazy to less crazy in the sense that Archelaus down Judea is a nut job who follows in the footsteps of his megalomaniac father. He receives Judea, which is the most powerful seat, but he's so crazy that the, Ro the Romans actually remove him. Just for our own purposes here, take you back very quickly to Matthew chapter two. I wrote it down here so I would be able to go exactly where you need to go. Matthew chapter two, verse 19. But when Herod died, are you with me, Annie? Yep, I'm there. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother. That's Herod the Great, right? Right, right, right. And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus reigned in Judea, there it is. Archelaus is the crazed, mad son of Herod the Great. Okay. Mm -hmm. He reigned in Judea in the place of his father Herod. He, uh, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Are you with me? Almost. Come on. That's in the New Testament, Annie. I know. Luke chapter 3, okay. verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's Rome. Rome. Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea. What? What happened to Archelaus? See? Huh. Now, so there's the you, Pilate ends up being appointed as governor and they replace the problem of having a foreign king. Mm. Okay. And they leave the two other brothers who are kind of king figures up in the north, but they're eh, they're not worried about those guys. They're worried about Jerusalem. So they appoint Pilate to, to be Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of galilee and that's herod antipas so that's the, that's the other brother mm -hmm. and then there's philip in the region of Etiria. and so that's guy on the eastern side remember it's philip who's the weak guy who has his wife herodias who ends up being taken as the concubine of his brother on the western shore herod right so am I making sense? Herod the Great, Archelaus, Herod, Herod onto us, and Philip. And really, you got to put Herod on the front of all of those names if you're going to make sense out of it. And yeah. that's the problem that we face with knowing Herod and Herod, who is which one's which one, okay? And that's Herod up in the north that is now that comes into the story here in Luke chapter 13. So Herod's looking to 
to kill Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is running around getting a tremendous number of followers and he's becoming dangerous. Remember in Luke chapter 12, it says there was thousands, chapter one, chapter 12, verse one, there's thousands of people following him. Mm-hmm. So Herod's becoming more and more concerned about Jesus and the Pharisees come to him. And now you, you got a problem. You say, wait a minute, are the Pharisees on Jesus' side? Are they like gunning? Are they like, hey, Jesus, get out of here because they're going to kill you. Mm, not so much. If you really watch the Pharisees in the earlier chapters of the gospel, especially in the gospel of Mark, you can see these guys are, they're, 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 they're fair weather friends. They want to be around Jesus when it helps them out. And they're on the, they're on the, they're over there in the corners really talking with Herod. Why did they know what Herod was going to do? Because they well, were talking to him. They're in his, they're hanging around his court. Yeah. yeah. And so they're like, Hey, you know, get out of here. And so they're, they're just trying to manipulate the situation. And, and so we can then go to this, the next thing, which is, which is chapter 14 verses one through seven, in which the question of the Sabbath comes up, which mm-hmm. helps us tie in the whole picture because this problem with the Pharisees has been going on the whole time. And it's still here in chapter 14. Look, notice how it happens. One Sabbath, it's chapter 14, verse one, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler who belonged to the Pharisees, they were watching him. And behold, there was a man, this is what's skipped now, a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So Jesus starts, if they're plotting against him, Jesus is plotting against them. He knows exactly what they're talking about. And he calls them out. He finally just says, you sickos, I'm calling you out for how sick you are. Okay. And then he goes in and, and goes after them because this conversation has been going on behind his back. And he finally calls it out in front of him because he's heading to Jerusalem, okay? And um, Jesus, one of the words, if Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they went silent. Why? Now, come back with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, uh, chapter five. The Gospel of John, chapter five, healing of the paralytic. When Jesus heals the paralytic, this is very early in the gospel. Yeah. Verse 17. Oh, verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus, because he did this on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working still and I am working. This is was why the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Hmm. So They were already plotting so now you got to go back to Luke chapter 14 and realize that when Jesus sits down at his dinner, he's sitting around a, a pack of wolves and he knows it. And he basically punches them in the face. And I, and I do one other context very quickly because, because the fight has already, it's been going on with the Pharisees behind the scene, but Jesus has already come out swinging and they're, they're just seething. And to understand this, you have to go, look, at, we, we saw in chapter 13, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Right. And uh, so I'm going to go back chapter 13, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wing, but you would not behold your house is forsaken. Now hold your hand there and go back to Matthew chapter 25. 
chapter 25 to give a little bit more context that Jesus has been going after them. Chapter 25, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. See that? Yeah. Killing the prophets and stoning. It sees the same thing, right? But what does Jesus say just before this that Luke doesn't? He picks it up in a different way. But Matthew gives us gives us the one-two punch. And that starts back in chapter 23, verse 20, verse 13. Chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, Jesus is sitting down in Luke at a dinner with these same guys who he just said this to. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Why does he say they haven't entered the kingdom? Because in Luke chapter 7, we find out that the Pharisees refused the baptism of John. Remember, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. They refused right. the baptism of John, Luke chapter 7. You go look it up. And then verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You traverse sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. And so forth, okay? Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. And then, nice hippie, braided hair, Birkenstock wearing Jesus sits down to dine with them. <laughs> Yes. I was going to ask, why in the world is Jesus sitting down to eat with these guys who he knows are trying to kill him? He's coming out of the corner. It's yeah. time he's going to Jerusalem. And it's time that the, that the, that the sheep and the goats be divided. Mm. And the only one to divide the sheep and the goats is the shepherd. He goes into the midst of the wolves and he calls them out for who they are. Yeah. And so all of those woes to you apply to what Jesus now says in our gospel, in our, in our gospel text, which is the reason why he's even invited to this dinner mm -hmm. because he's the traveling superstar. Yeah. If Jesus comes to your home, I mean, your home is where it's going on. And if you don't get Jesus come to your home, no one's coming, right? So if you want to be the most powerful, the most important person, you bring in the guy with thousands of people walking with him to Jerusalem. And that's what happens. And he goes into that dinner and rather than budding up with uh, you know, the, those who would, I'll give you a, a, a good example. Instead of sitting down at a dinner with the, the, the God forsaken baby killer politicians and buddying up with them because you can raise a bunch of money at your, at your chancery dinner. Yeah. Am I making myself clear enough? Mm -hmm. Rather than doing that, Jesus went in there and he didn't raise money. He raised hell because he called them out for who they are. He went in there and said, you politician who say you're a Catholic in public, you're excommunicated. And you're excommunicated not because I say you're excommunicated. You're excommunicated because you excommunicated yourself. Yeah. And that's what Jesus says right here in the gospel chapter 7 or chapter 14 verse 7 through 14 what does he say you're a bunch of 
whitewashed tombs and you want to come buddy up to me right now you're going to try to get the first place next to me and you're trying you're plotting my own death i know who you are and then he gives us teaching about what a real Christian is supposed to be like, what a true follower of God is supposed to be like in light of Sirach. Yeah. And his teaching very much is, uh, uh, aligns with the teachings of Sirach. Yeah. I have this um, chapter, Sirach chapter 28, verse two, verse, verse two. Let's take a look. Sirach chapter 28. Well, let me get back to Sirach. Yeah. Okay. One moment. 28, you said? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm there. Chapter 20, verse 1. He who takes vengeance will suffer vengeance from the Lord, and he will firmly establish his sins. Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. What does that sound like? See our Father, right? Yeah. Jesus is using everything they're hearing in the synagogue, in the, in the ecclesia, right? In ecclesiastic, in the assembly, when they're hearing the assembly teaching being given, and he's taking it and he's putting it back in front of them in a real tangible way. Because th while they're unrolling the scroll, they're not living the life, yeah. right? I'm going to come back to this quotation from Origen, which I wanted to share with you earlier, and I, I kind of skipped over it. Listen to what Origen has to say. Very often, the priestly order and the Levitical office are a cause of pride to one who forgets that he holds such dignity in the bosom of the church. So here he's talking about Christian priests, right? And the established church in this mm -hmm. late Pentecost season in sure. which there's a community Paul walks into that is already dedicated. And they're hearing about Paul's, you know, healings and, uh, you know, he's famous and he's now visiting them and they're getting puffed up and they want to be next to him and get, you know, and so forth. So very often the priestly order and the Levitical office are a cause of pride to one who forgets that he holds such dignity in the bosom of the church. How many priests, and this is not Father Hezekiah saying this, by the way, this is origin. Place, how many priests placed at the head have forgotten to be humble? I'm going to stop for a second because I got I to get on one of my hobby horses against this, this whole uh, front table business. You've been yeah. at, these, at these banquets in which the honored table is out there in front. I can't think of a less Christian thing. As if their ordination has given them some dispensation from humility. On the contrary, they should observe humility precisely because they have been invested with such great dignity. According to the words of the scriptures, the greater you are, the humbler you ought to be. The assembly chooses you. Bow your head even more humbly. They have elected you as a leader of others. Do not feel as though you are exalted. Be among them as one of them. You must humble and you must be humble and modest. Flee from pride, the source of all evil. This is very beautiful and, and very applicable. And what Jesus says here in the gospel is certainly applicable to what's going on among the Pharisees at his, at his table, at the Pharisees' table. But it's super applicable to us today. And what Origen does it for us, not Father Hezekiah. So I'm just going to say Origen said it. So we better start to listen. The other church fathers warned us against it. And that is ecclesiastical dignity taken to the level of ridiculousness. You know, in the Byzantine tradition, it is customary, and in, in actually in the West also historically, that when you, greet, when you greet a priest, you kiss his hand. The Filipinos still do this. They place the priest's hand on their forehead. Okay, it's very beautiful. Uh, why? Not because of the guy, 
because the hands that touch the Eucharist yeah. so in a way to honor Christ, not this guy. Yeah. And so, yes, this is what happens when in our, in my Byzantine community, when someone approaches, they ask for my blessing, I bless them and they kiss my hand, the same hand that serves them at dinner, by the way. And if I ever stop serving them at dinner and picking up their dirty plates and taking out the trash, then, then, then they ought to throw me out of the community because it is only in being likened to Christ who says, I have come not to be served, but to serve that we will find our salvation and we will find our honor. Yeah. And we need to learn this again in the church. Yes. Honor your priests, honor your bishops, but priests and bishops, we need to learn how to serve again in real practical ways. Our community, if our vestments are beautiful, so much more so should our beautiful service be in which we humble ourselves and actually do the things necessary to serve God's people. So important to the Institute of Catholic Culture, the beautiful priests and the and the and uh, and teachers that come to us do so in a humble way, not because they're elevated to be the great and glorious knowledgeable one, but because they're giving us the most important things. I, I think of people like Dr. Cutterback and 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 Father Scalia and and uh, Father David Anderson and Monsignor Pope and others, yeah, who are true servants of God. And we should be modeling our lives in that way. And all of us, all of us who are dignified by our baptism, the order of the priesthood of the faithful should follow suit and listen to Jesus's words. You look for the last seat on that bus. You look to be the last one in that line to, to get your dinner. You look to the person who needs to be served, the handicapped and those less fortunate. Serve them first and you'll find the way of Christ. And that's what he's, Jesus is doing. He's coming towards Jerusalem, throwing up his hands. I would have done anything for you, but you would not. Your house, that house you built for yourself, while you allow the house of the Lord to lie in ruin, it is forsaken and the Lord is not there. And it is only where the Lord is, the home of God can be. And where the Lord is, is where he's going to find his servants serving in humility. Enough about that, Annie. Which is kind of what St. Paul is saying in the second reading in Hebrews chapter 12, I think. He reminds us, uh, he reminds us of the, of the true banquet into which all, and this is why I'm saying about the priesthood, uh, apply to all of us. Those who are wearing crosses around our necks, go to church on Sunday, have the name of Christian. Are we living as Christians? For you are called to serve at the heavenly banquet. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12. Annie, read it for us. Hebrews 12, 18 and, uh, uh, and 19 and 22 and 24. So chapter 12, verses 18 through 19 and 22 through 24. Brothers and sisters, you have not approached that which could be touched in a blazing fire and gloomy darkness and storm and a trumpet blast and a voice speaking words such that those who heard begged that no message be further addressed to them. No, you have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and countless angels in festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven and God, the judge of all and the spirits of the just made perfect and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. Mm. Whew. Yeah, this is um, two, two images are very important here in what St. Paul is talking about that might have escaped some people. The first image that's given is Annie. The, the mountain in darkness, right? This you have not right. approached with a touch of blazing fire. What's he talking about? 
Moses. That's right. Mount Sinai. Yeah. Right. You have not approached from that which could be touched in a blazing fire and a gloomy darkness, a storm and a trumpet blast, a voice speaking words such as those heard, begged that no message be further addressed to them. This is from the book of Exodus. When they came out of, of uh, Egypt, they find themselves at the base of the mountain, and all of a sudden God's presence is, comes on the mountain, this cloud of darkness, and there's lightning and thunder and fire descends on the mountain, and the people of God say... <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Moses, you go do it for us. <laughs> right? Because, well, Moses instructed them to prepare themselves for three days, and probably they had not. They were, to, they were not to have any sexual intercourse. They were not there to keep the fast and all these things. And yet they had not prepared themselves. So they're afraid. Now the other image is Mount Sion. Well, what is Mount Sion? Mount Sion is, this, is the highest uh, hill of Jerusalem where at the time of Jesus was the Essene quarter. Those who were very dedicated to the Lord. It's the place where the, the last supper took place. And we have that image of Sion in the old Testament in which we hear of daughter Sion, which refers to those who remained in Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile, uh, the poorest of the poor who were the vine dressers, right? Who those ones who had been in slavery prior to the Babylonian exile, who their brothers had enslaved, right? And they had refused to follow the Jubilee year. They were finally given their freedom of, of the Jubilee, a final arrest for 70 years. And then the image that is applied to Mount Sion itself in Jerusalem. No, you have approached Mount Sion. Yeah, the city of the living God. The people gathered there are of a different, of a different sort, right? The heavenly Jerusalem, the countless angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. In Pauline in theology, the firstborn is, are, are, are those who are baptized into Christ, yeah, and, and so forth. So just a, a completely different thing. And then we have this image of Jesus as, as the mediator of the new covenant, right? We speak of that new covenant theme all the time, but, but what St. What Paul enriches it for us, the new covenant is Jesus, Jesus' new covenant because he is God and man, right? And a covenant, two parties are joined as one in agreement to the thing like we think of a, of a contract in American society. A contract, I agree. I'll give this amount of money, you'll give the land, and we come to an agreement. We're of one mind, right? Well, a, a covenant is a deeper form of that in which the two persons become one. And Jesus is the new covenant because God and man are joined together in the eternal person of the word. And that separation can, that there can, that can never be broken again. Yeah. It's that heavenly banquet that we're sitting at. And it's then that Jesus's words of how we're to live in that, in that uh, uh, society, in that kingdom become uh, in, an instruction for us all the way back to, to Sirach. My child, conduct your affairs with humility. What affairs? What's going on in the church? And then by extension, what's going on outside the church? We go out into, the, into society, right? Sirach can be read as an instruction to the Christians, which is why it was used so often in the liturgy. Yeah? Christian, humble yourself. Conduct your affairs with humility. And you will be loved more than the giver of gifts. I didn't mention something about that. The giver of gifts can never alone be the giver of gifts. He must also be the receiver of gifts. Mm. A giver of gifts can oftentimes hold the other in spiritual slavery because he's mm. the one who has given. The more difficult thing is for us to receive. Mm. 
to become indebted to the other. Yeah. So the giver of gifts is good to the extent that he's also the receiver of gifts and realizes that his own place, his own dependency. Yeah. Humble yourself, Christian. The more, the greater you are, and you will find favor with God. Yeah. Give alms and atone for your sins and so forth, and all of these things. Do not take the first place of honor and give that to another. Always look to be at service to one another. Speaking to that Christian community now in Asia Minor and in Rome and in Egypt and now spread out all over the world. And yes, in Virginia and in, in Ohio and in, and, 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 in, and in Colorado and you know, wherever you are in the Philippines. California. California even, yeah. This is how do you live in the house of God. What a great uh, image is given to us this Sunday by the church and great instruction for our church as we prepare ourselves now for the beginning of the ecclesiastical and eventually the coming of Christ in the flesh. May God bless you all. The prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.